Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. Amen, yeah, 20 years part of this church family. Um, started out by hanging out at our student service. So you never, students, you never know, turn up on Wednesday. You might still be here in 20 years. I don't know if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, who knows. But um, so I'm John, I'm part of the leadership team here, um, and I'm excited to um, continue our new series we just started um, called Open Hands. Now last week Ralph did a really beautiful job, didn't he, of um, opening this up for us, um, of introducing us or maybe reintroducing us to Jesus, the open-handed king. And one of the key passages that um, we're leaning on over these coming weeks is Philippians 2 where we learn that Jesus, even though he had every right to hold on to what he had and what he was, he was equal with God. He chose to surrender it. He chose to make room for others within himself. Quick reminder, Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to be reading from the the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, today. Um, Paul says to us, adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or to be grasped or to be held onto. Kind of unpacking that word a little bit. You know, in Jesus' very crowning glory, his moment of exaltation was being lifted up on a cross. His life laid down for others. He could have chosen to enjoy all the benefits of being equal with God, of being in the form of God, which means he was God. It doesn't just mean like he looked like God. He was the same shape. It means he was God. And, you know, there was a wrestle in it for Jesus, wasn't there? There was a wrestle in the garden as to whether or not he had to go ahead with the plan. But he ultimately surrendered his life in obedience to the Father's plan and purpose. And it's this Jesus that we're called to imitate, to become like to be transformed into his likeness, to model our lives after and to allow the Holy Spirit to come and shape us to be like him. And Ralph shared this quote last week from a guy called Jared Boyd, who's a pastor, spiritual director, part of the Vineyard Movement in the US. He says this, salvation within the framework of the earliest theologians is the gradual unifying of the human and God. We are being joined to the divine and have received the very spirit of God into our bodies as a down payment of the process that is unfolding in our lives. We're being made like him. And so over the course of following in the way of Jesus, we can expect that suffering and heartache and loss of relationships and a whole host of other things, giving away our wealth, serving and befriending the poor, etc., will slowly help us to learn that there is nothing in this life of ours that is really worth grasping onto. And so we learn to let go and allow God's very own love to heal us and then pour out of us into the world. This is what Jesus means by eternal life. It's a particular kind of life that we only know how to live once we have learned that the life we thought we were building can be given up for this new life, which is being slowly which is slowly being transformed by love and grace and humility into something glorious. 
And so we're using this picture of being open-handed, of not holding tight, not grasping, to think about how we posture ourselves in the world and the ways we show up. And this week, I want to invite us to think about the ideas of control and surrender. Because surrender is the antidote to control. It's what we're invited into to give us relief and release from the pressure of attempting to shape the world around us into what we think it ought to be. Using our own strength, our own ability, our own efforts to exert ourselves upon the world. Whereas the Jesus way looks completely the opposite. Allowing yourself even to be murdered by your enemies, which somehow God looks at and calls victory. But I want to talk about losing the illusion of control. Over the last few years, I have developed a deep appreciation uh, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you ever hear anyone tell you that the book of Ecclesiastes is man's wisdom without God, scratch that. It's a beautiful book of hard-won, hard-fought wisdom by someone who has seen a lot of life. And the book starts out this way. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Amen. Um, but the word here for futility is a Hebrew word. Hebel. I mean, they all were Hebrew words. But futility is the one that we want to pay attention to. Um, hebel. It means vapor or breath. It's representing something that you can see. You can almost touch it, but you can't take hold of it. You can't grasp at it. If we want to make, mix up our ancient languages, you could say you can't, hag, you can't harpagmos, something that's hebel. But Ecclesiastes then spends the next 12 chapters going on to expand upon this futility of life. It's like just all this stuff carries on and you can't do anything about it. But then it does land on a much more helpful note later on, which we're going to come back to. But I think there is a secret in this, among the meaninglessness. And it's a secret that if we can take a hold of, it's going to release a lot of pressure on us. So here is a secret to a happy life. You are not in control. You're not in control. Along with understanding that you're not that important, that life is not about you, that life is hard and one day you're going to die, learning that you're not in control, embracing the fact that you're not in control of anything except yourself is a freeing and wonderful thing to take hold of. If you think about it for a moment, we live in this world where so much is outside of our control, is outside of our influence. How people respond to us. What the weather's doing. We don't control those things. Think about March 2020. This mysterious virus rocks up on our shores and all of a sudden we're in lockdown. We're no longer able to leave the house except for some government mandated exercise once a day. Did you feel that sense of the world being a little bit out of control? Out of your control? And even the people that were meant to be in charge didn't seem to know what to do. They didn't seem to exert their will on the world to shape it in the right way either. 
Or how about where we find ourselves here in autumn 2022? You know, in the UK, we may have taken back control, but somehow we've got a cabinet and a prime minister and a chancellor that are making decisions that nobody voted for. And there's no comment on whether those decisions are good ones or not. It's just you had no control over them. And like many of you, Em and I, we found ourselves at the mercy of mortgage rates in the last couple of weeks. We cannot control the mortgage rates that we had to, um, you know, in the very privileged position of owning a house. I'll say that much, but we had to accept the reality that we we're going to pay more for our mortgage. Paying more for the same thing, I don't like that. But hey, it doesn't feel good. But we don't have much choice in the matter. There's a lot that feels out of control in the world, isn't there? There's a lot that can make us afraid in that. Nobody mentioned energy bills. There's a lot that feels like vapor. We can see it and we can feel it, but we can't grasp it. We can't make it bend to our will or exert ourselves upon it. And maybe deep down, we do realize this a little bit. And so we attempt to manage and control the things that are within our influence. Because with control comes predictability. And in an uncertain and predictable world, we crave a bit of stability. We've only got so much uncertainty that we can handle as human beings. But if we're looking to control everything outside of us, we're only going to get trapped into a cycle where we just either shrink the world, our world, to the size of what we can control, or we'll just drive ourselves and those around us crazy as we burn out in an attempt to be the hero of every story and every aspect of our lives. Because there's just one thing that any of us is called to control, and that's ourselves. The only thing you can control is you. Your internal world with your reactions and your responses to things and the words you say and the actions you take. You are in charge of those things. However, this is not easy. Controlling the way I respond, controlling the way I react. No wonder God knows this and he wants to help us. Self-control, after all, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need some help to control yourself and God wants to give you that help in the form of his Holy Spirit. Our response to the world is the only thing we can control. We can't control other people, we can't control the Bank of England base rate, but we can control how we're gonna respond to these things. It's not easy, but God offers us his Holy Spirit to help us grow in self-control. Remember that quote from earlier, from Jared Boyd, that Holy Spirit is a down payment of what's gonna come one day, because God has a plan. And it doesn't involve control. As we see from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God does plan to intervene in a world that seems out of control. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. But before we get to that, let's wind the clock back a little bit 
Let's think about the world that God created when he first created it. What was God's plan from the beginning? Now, Genesis 1 gives us a creation story about God bringing order to a chaotic world. Over the course of six days, before he puts his feet up on the seventh, takes a nap. On day six, that's the day God makes humankind. Male and female, he makes them in his image and his likeness. God makes human beings to be like him. Because what does it mean to be made in God's image? Does it mean that God has two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, ten fingers and ten toes? Or is it is being made in the image of God something more to do with being created to act like him? To have agency and the ability to influence the world, to think for ourselves and not be robots. I think in short, when God created human beings, he gave up a little bit of control. And in the next creation story we get in Genesis 2, God puts man and woman, who we later find out called Adam and Eve, in a garden to take care of it. And he gives them just this one rule. He says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the thing in this story that convinces the woman, I mean, her husband's right there. Let's just be really clear. Her husband's right there the whole time. But the thing that convinces the woman to reach out and grasp at the fruit from the tree isn't because the fruit, you know, would be really tasty and she's hungry. What the serpent, the snake, says to her is that, hey, God doesn't want you to eat that. Because if you eat that, you'll be like him. But hold on a minute. This man and this woman, they were made in God's image already. But the invitation from the snake was to reach out, to seize control, to manipulate the situation and get what they wanted in their own time and in their own way. To refuse to work to God's timing, to refuse to follow God's plan. Now, when I read that story, I believe that, ultimately, God's intention was, in the fullness of time, to allow the man and the woman to eat from the fruit of that tree. They just weren't ready yet. They didn't have the maturity that God was growing them into. Because when you read later on in the biblical story, knowing between good and evil is a really, really good thing. But it wasn't the time for them. It was almost like they had this promise. They saw what they could be. And instead of waiting with God and allowing him to partner with them, they reached out and they took it for themselves. And by bypassing God's timing and taking control for themselves, when they grasped, it all just fell apart for them. And God had to take them out of the garden the garden where they would have been able to eat from this other tree, the tree of life, and to live forever. But instead, they had to labor and toil and suffer and eventually die. And I think so often, our attempts at control are for something that God actually wants to give us anyway. A world where we feel safe. A world where every element of doubt is resolved. A world where there is no tears. There is no sadness. There is no death. But God's not quite ready 
for that just yet. And he invites us to live in a different way, in a way that right now is a little more at peace with the chaos around us. You know, there's a whole bunch of people in scripture who are waiting on a promise, but kind of pushed their timing. And it kind of went wrong for them. Think about Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 16, they've been promised not just a son by God, but a whole legacy. More descendants than um, could more descendants than they could count stars in the sky. Like a ridiculous number of descendants. They've been promised an entire nation as a legacy. But they get impatient and decide that the best way to go is to take matters into their own hands, have Abraham sleep with their slave girl, Hagar, and get her pregnant. And again, this has really bad consequences for them. And they end up changing their mind later on when their son Isaac does arrive and they send Hagar and Ishmael away out into the desert. And it's just not becoming, it's not fitting of people who bear the name of God. They held on to a promise, but they pushed it and made it happen in their own time and in their own way instead of waiting for the Lord to act. Or how about the nation of Israel? We read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8 where they're asking God for a king. They're like, we want a king. And God even says to Samuel, but I'm their king. I'm the king. But they want a king who they can take a hold of. They can feel, they can touch, they can see, and they just want to be like everybody else, really. Or Judea in the time of Jesus, in the first century, Jews living in what we call Israel and Palestine today, they were expecting that God was going to move, that he was going to do something, that he was going to come back and redeem the nation of Israel. But a whole bunch of them had a bunch of different ideas about how this was going to work. You had the Pharisees who were like, if everybody just follows all the rules all the time, even the ones for priests, then God will see it and he'll come and move. Or you've got the zealots who are like, well, maybe if we just kill all the Romans, maybe that's the thing that will bring God back to us. Or you've got the Essenes who are like, well, we're just going to go and hang out in the desert and be our own thing. And we'll just do the kingdom of God over there. Or you've got the Sadducees who are like, well, maybe we could, you know, make this work with the Romans. We can bend a little bit. We can, we can work this out with those guys. But then Jesus shows up in a completely unexpected way. His kingdom was not of this world. And he shows us that God is not interested in using coercive power to achieve his plans and his purposes. God has and has a plan to redeem and rescue this chaotic and out of control world. He's got a plan to wipe every tear from every eye, to make every sad thing come untrue. But he's just not going to be coerced into it. We look briefly at the beginning of the story of Genesis. But what about the end of the story? The last book of the Bible, Revelation, tells us that God intends to make all things new. To unite heaven and earth into a place where death is no more, where grief and crying and pain are no more. That's his plan. That's his purpose. And all of creation is waiting and groaning in anticipation of the fulfillment of that plan. And he wants to offer us the peace and the reassurance 
that he will do what he said he's going to do. That we don't need to force the issue or wrestle to control the world in the meantime. Because in time, God will make all things new. He will restore all things. We don't need to reach out and grasp for the things that we may well be entitled to. We can rest assured that he will make things right in the end. If you want to look at someone who knows the benefit of waiting without grasping, look at Jesus. You know, Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. You can read it in Matthew chapter 4, where he says, look, you could do these things. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the way I'm going to go. The devil's like, bow down and worship me, and you can have all this stuff. Pull on these levers. Like, put these mechanisms into process. And you can get what you want. You can get what you're owed. And Jesus says, No. And sometimes we can kid ourselves into thinking that, well, maybe if we just live the perfect life, maybe if we just follow all the rules, then maybe life is going to be like we want. And you can read the Bible and think, yeah, there's a whole bunch of rules here. Maybe if I just follow them all, maybe that's the key, right? Maybe that's the key to getting every promise of God seen, fulfilled in my life. But living a godly life is no way to guarantee the right outcome, but it is the right thing to do. You know, the the Bible, on one hand, has this narrative that says, follow the rules and you're going to be all right. But then there's this counter-narrative that says, but hold on, read the book of Psalms. So many times the psalmist is saying, why does this system not work, God? Why do the wicked prosper? Why are those people over there getting all the benefits and all the blessings that you said would be ours? And even though I've been faithful, why is my life a complete mess? I don't think Psalms offers us that many answers, but it gives us a beautiful expression of being able to say to God, I don't understand this. I thought life was going to be different. What about the book of Job? I think Job's one of those fascinating books where we can get caught up on some of the details, but the overarching picture of Job is this wrestle between Job and his friends of saying, Why does all this bad stuff happen to someone that's kept all the rules? Because you'd be entitled to think if you were Job. You'd put in a whole bunch of hard work. You'd done all the right things and you would be entitled to see some good outcomes. And it just doesn't work like that. And ultimately, God shows up to Job and he says, I don't really have an answer for you either. But I'm God and you're not. So you can trust me or... Just deal with it. And it's both beautiful and unfulfilling at the same time. He talks a little bit about hippos and crocodiles as well. It's a lot of fun. But God's answer to Job is like, I'm God and you're not. And you've just got to trust me. 
Because this is it. We are not in control of what happens beyond the boundaries of our own heart. And just like God says to Job, like I'm, I'm not giving you all the answers. Just like Psalms doesn't give us all the answers. Jesus doesn't offer us all the answers either. What he does give us is himself. He doesn't promise us an outcome, but he promises to be with us. He does promise some pretty great stuff like, in this life you will have trouble. It's one of my favorite promises of Jesus. But the very last words he says in Matthew's gospel, as he's heading out the door on a cloud, going up to heaven. As he's heading out the door, he says, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' last words. As he's leaving, he promises to be with us. So these things are moving in the opposite direction, aren't they? What he's talking about is the promise of his Holy Spirit that will come and make him known to you. What he's talking about is the promise of community around you to show you the face of Jesus when you can't see him for yourself. When life is out of control, Jesus is still with you. You might feel it in a moment in worship. You might not. You might need a friend to sit with you and listen to you. You might need to be that friend who sits and listens. When life is out of control, Jesus promises to be with us. And because he's worth it, because he is worth us spending our entire life on, even if we don't get anything out of him other than his presence with us, because he's worth it, we get to surrender and say, Jesus, I want to live the life that you have for me. I want to do life with you, Jesus. I don't want life on my own terms. I don't want to grasp and wrestle and make things happen for myself. Jesus, I want to do life with you. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. At the end of his book, when he's gone on and on about how meaningless life is and about how everything is in vain. Ecclesiastes 12 Verse 13 and 14 says, look, when all's been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. Or in other translations, it might say this is the full duty of man. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes just spent 12 chapters telling us that life is futile, life is like vapor, and that ultimately we're called to get on and serve God anyway. Because he will eventually make sense of it all. Everything is going to come into the light eventually. Under God's good and perfect judgment. Judgment feels like a scary thing. To most of us, judgment feels like a heavy, weighty term. But in the book of 1 John, it tells us that 
We don't need to fear judgment. Because God is going to perfect us with his love. You see, in the meantime, before everything is brought into the light, before every hidden thing, whether good or evil, is brought into God's judgment, we may not get the answers we want. But we can choose to surrender to him, to him and get his presence with us in the meantime. Surrender to Jesus really looks like a willingness to trust that he will do what he said he's going to do, regardless of how circumstances might look. To let go of worry. To lean into the reality that there's nothing in this life worth holding on to except Jesus. Because really, he's the one holding on to us. Um, I loved where worship took us today Barney and Andy I love what you guys were saying as we worshipped I loved it so much I wrote it down trying to find it again Barney you were saying that God's been good to us whether we've seen it or not because God's goodness isn't dependent on a bunch of outcomes it's about him being with us through the things we can and cannot control. And I love what you said, that our hope isn't in that something is going to happen because we do the right thing, but that God would come and hold on to us in the midst of it all. And... Um, I appreciate life feels pretty heavy right now. I've probably not helped. I've talked about life being out of control. I've told you you're going to die, that you can't really do anything about it, and you're not that important. But what I want to invite you to is that in the midst of the chaos, in the middle of life feeling out of control, that Jesus would want to meet you today. That he'd want to come to you, look you in the eyes and say, I'm with you till the very end of the age. And I don't know about you guys, but that has got to be enough for me. It's got to be enough for me because I cannot control what's happening out there. I cannot control what the Bank of England are doing or how much gas we're able to get from mainland Europe this winter. That's completely out of my control. What I can control is surrendering to Jesus, trusting that he's with me, that he has a plan that I might not see in my lifetime, but he'd want to show up in the meantime. And that sometimes, sometimes the light breaks through, doesn't it? I think God's good to, just, just good enough to us, sometimes that. We get these little glimpses of what he's going to do when someone we know gets healed, or maybe it's us, gets healed, or like money pops through the letterbox unexpectedly, or when the person you thought you'd lost touch with 
suddenly appears in the supermarket. I think we get these little ways that God wants to show us really practically that he's still, he's still moving. It's in the background. May not be the big picture yet, but he's there. But above anything else, I want us to know that Jesus is with us to the end of the age. So I want to pray for you. Why don't we stand up today? And maybe you'll find this helpful. Sometimes when we pray, doing something with our bodies just helps us connect with whatever it is that the Lord is doing with us today. And I would love for you, if you feel comfortable, just to hold your hands out in front of you and close your fists. I want you to picture the things that you hold on to for control. I want you to picture the things that you are trying to get a result from in life. It could even be things that you are waiting on the Lord for a promise for. It could be that you're waiting on God for a job, that you're waiting on God, waiting on God for provision. It could be that you're waiting on God for someone to share your life with. It could be that you're waiting on God for a baby. It could be any of those things, or it could just be that you're just waiting on God to come make all things new. Picture the things that you're holding on to. And I want you to offer them to Jesus, to open your hands and say, Jesus, I surrender these to you. Jesus, we don't want to hold on to control. We don't want to hold on to the illusion that we're in control. We want to trust that you would come and be with us. Jesus, today, would you come and make yourself known to us? Whether that's through a sense of your presence, something that we feel, either in our bodies or our hearts or our minds, Well, Jesus, maybe you want to come and make yourself known to us through a friend, through a connection, through another human being, your hands and feet today. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless, and see you soon.